Coming up, Scotty Scheffler showed the world why he's the number one golfer on the tour as he wins the green jacket at Augusta. I'll recap a not-so-thrilling tournament, how Tiger Woods performed, and when we may see him again. The NBA season has concluded. On deck, the playing tournament before the real tournament begins on Saturday. Aaron Judge is betting on himself as he's taking a huge risk, a tragic death in the NFL over the weekend, and plenty more where that came from. So let's get this sports week started off on the right foot. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in five, four, three, two, one. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest hope everybody's well feeling fantastic in excellent spirits as i'm ecstatic to have you guys and gals on board as i fill you in on all that's going on in the sports universe that we love to follow as this is the j reels podcast with your host j reels for my first timers welcome aboard and for those who've been banging with me from the very beginning somewhere in the middle or even if it's just been recent i welcome you guys and gals back Obviously, lots to get into as we start off another week, and as we wake up on this Monday morning, the first thing that comes across the sports ticker has to be what took place at Augusta over the weekend, the first major golf tournament, a tradition unlike any other, and what we come away with over these final, or I should say these past four days at Augusta, was a tournament that we were hoping it would be nail-biting, a white-knuckler, drama, and it was the total opposite. We did not get any of that, considering Tiger Woods was the focal point of this whole backdrop, considering what he had gone through over the past 14 months, and I'll get to him in a minute. But even as we were anticipating after the first round where Tiger Woods was one stroke under and was not near the top of the leaderboard, but considering that he had such a great start to his Masters that The likelihood of him making the cut was going to be just that. And to have some momentum going into the weekend to possibly think that Tiger could make it to a possible top of the leaderboard come Sunday, obviously that wasn't the case. And again, I'll get to Tiger a little bit more. I get it. This is going to be Tiger-centric. This is 
one tournament that because it's the Masters, this is the Super Bowl of golf, and when you have a guy who is by far, even with everything that has transpired, not only just in the last 14 months, but going back to the, all the injuries, whether his knee, his back, the situation there, 2009 Thanksgiving, and how that all imploded, not only in Tiger's world, but we got a first look to see his whole life unravel. We understand that no matter what he may go through, he is going to be the top story because of who he is. But as we take a look at this tournament on the whole, it wasn't a great tournament. It wasn't even a good tournament. Unfortunately, it was a tournament that was highlighted by a guy who is as scalding hot as you could possibly be for a golfer coming into this year, and not only that, into this tournament. And that would be a 25-year-old, the third youngest player, other than Tiger and Jordan Spieth, to win this tournament. And he's actually from Ridgewood, New Jersey. Well, at least he was born there. Is Scotty Scheffler. And when I talked about a guy who could be a favorite or someone who I thought was going to win the tournament, I went with the safe bet and went with John Rahm, who was obviously nowhere to be found throughout the course of the weekend. But for Scheffler, give it up. Here's a guy that since Super Bowl Sunday, and I get it, these aren't major tournaments. I also understand that if you're the average golf fan or someone who occasionally follows golf to the point like yours truly, to me it's all about the major events, the smaller events, I could care less. But when you have a guy who won the Phoenix Open there on Super Bowl Sunday, follow that up with the Arnold Palmer Invitational there, I believe it was March 6th, And then three weeks after that, the match play. And then just two weeks after that, Augusta. I can't remember in recent memory a golfer who has been as torrid as he has. And even with those smaller tournaments, I know John Rahm last year had that stretch where, remember, I forgot the tournament that it was. I believe it was somewhere in Arizona. But he was on a roll to the point where they had to pull him off the course after the third round to where... He had contracted COVID, and then Patrick Cantlay won that tournament, and where Rom was just clicking off wins pretty much by the week. But even then, we didn't get to see the full magnitude and the display that we've seen the way Scotty Scheffler played, not only just over the weekend, but pretty much for the past two months. He was in control pretty much the whole weekend, but especially since Saturday, where he started to really make his move. And then, come yesterday, he had a three-stroke lead over Cam Smith. And a lot of people thought that this could be a mano a mano with the young Aussie, the 28-year-old, going up against Scheffler, where a lot of people were hoping that if somebody was going to make a late charge, that at least we could have the two guys that were teeing off at 2.40 p.m. yesterday have some drama, have a... 15-round, knockdown, heavyweight-type fight. Unfortunately, that wasn't to be seen. Because when we look at what happened yesterday, Cam Smith, although he did birdie on his first two holes, but then bogeyed the following two, and then really went in the toilet after the 12th hole where he triple bogeyed. And then at that point, he was nowhere to be found. And I'm sure he's not going to be able to sleep for a month because of it. Because Cam Smith, it was all right in front of him. Granted, that was a three-stroke deficit, And when it was all said and done, 
Scotty Scheffler was 10 under for the tournament and was pretty much the runaway winner. I know Rory came back with a fury to where he shot a 64, which tied for a final round shot at the Masters with, I believe, eight other golfers. But even then, Scheffler had a lot of wiggle room. Just think on that final hole at 18 yesterday where he hit the ball in the trees and then he was able to get out of it to the point where he got onto the green. He was putting for birdie. All right, he missed a long birdie putt. No big deal. Then when he was ready to putt for par, he missed that. Then even closer to that, he missed the follow-up. And then you're thinking, oh, geez, imagine if this was him having a two-stroke lead going into that final hole to where all the pressure was on, and maybe he kind of felt that. Maybe Scheffler, thankfully, he had that big of a margin to where maybe in his back pocket he thought, all right, not that he's going to purposely miss it, but to the point where he doesn't really have to worry whether or not if he does have a close miss or two, which he did, that he was going to pretty much shrink in front of America. But when all is said and done, Scheffler was the man. Scheffler showed by far he is the number one player in the world. And kudos to him on winning his first green jacket. Just an enormous display, consistency, dominance, and being able to not only break a sweat, but for the other golfers yesterday that had to really make up a lot of ground, and Rory was one of them, And personally, even with McElroy's heroics, I still thought that Scheffler was not in any danger to lose this tournament. And I get it that the broadcast are going to make it feel and make it look, oh, look at McElroy. Oh, he's closed the gap. This is something we'll have to watch out for. Let's see what Scheffler does. Uh, Scheffler had no pressure throughout him. If anything, maybe those last couple of putts, even with, at that point, a five-stroke lead, maybe he felt as if, all right, I got this. And whoop, all right. One miss, oh, oh, another, okay, well, hey, I'm still up three holes, so I'm good to go. And then obviously, that final putt sealed the deal. And you had a lot of the guys play well, but then on Sunday, just fell apart. Whether you're Sung J. Kim, Charles Swartzel, two guys that were near the top of the leaderboard going into yesterday, besides Cam Smith, certainly fell apart throughout the course of the afternoon. Obviously, Rory McIlroy and what he did here to get himself into the tournament. Now, mind you, he has not won a Masters, and I believe came close going into that final round. I believe it was in 2011, and that was the year that Charles Schwartzel won, where he had a big lead and then just literally fell apart throughout the course that final Sunday in Augusta that year. And Rory, who, as we've seen time after time after time, we know the talent, we know how great he is, but... For whatever the reason, he can't seem to get over that hump. And it took a Herculean effort for him to just be even mentioned and for him to capture second place there at the Masters. But he is still falling short of not only just winning this tournament, but even winning a bunch of majors. And then the weather played a factor, especially Friday and Saturday, where the winds were high, the temperature was in the 50s on Saturday. And when you have guys like Jordan Spieth, Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka, and even Xander Shoffley, who finished second last year in the tournament, not making the cut. And I know DeChambeau, a lot of people looked at him as coming in overweight and not really 100% healthy. Obviously, he's a guy that's going to be a grip it and rip it type of 
player, and certainly DeChambeau has fallen off here over the last uh, 8 to 10 months. But again, overall in this tournament, you didn't really have a lot of drama. And yes, now I'll segue to Tiger. And first off, what he did just to make it here to not only play in this tournament, but have the opening round that he did. And again, is there anything to write home about, especially if you're Tiger Woods? No. But knowing that 14 months ago, he needed to be operated on to put his leg back and not knowing that he was going to be able to, forget about even playing golf, but just walk with a normal gait. And then Friday, although did not play well, he had four of his first five holes where he bogeyed and couldn't seem to get on track. And then all you got to do is just look at what happened over the weekend. Although he did make the cut, And that is a moral victory. Granted, Tiger's never going to look at it that way because if you're Tiger Woods, it's all about winning these tournaments, never about making a cut or any type of, hey, look what I did, where at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, especially if you're Tiger Woods. But when he shot six over both Saturday and Sunday, obviously the worst of his career, he has to go back to the drawing board. Yes, he does have to celebrate the small victories, just him being there. Who knows? the future Tiger Woods as far as these major tournaments are concerned next month at the PGA he even mentioned that it's probably unlikely that he will play looks like it's going to be another game time decision for him even the following month at the US Open over Father's Day weekend he did say that he will play in St. Andrews at the British Open because that's one of his favorite courses if not his favorite course to play on so we're looking at July right this minute at the very least to where we may see Tiger back on the main stage again. Now, who knows? We'll see, I'm sure, the week or two leading up to the PGA next month. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of buzz about him maybe returning for that. But we have to go based on what he said. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of rest in the Woods household here over the course of the next few days. And who knows when we'll see him, whether it will be next month at some other tournament or maybe even at the British there in the middle of July. And that's what you have here with the golf. I mean, what more can I say? Again, it wasn't riveting. It wasn't compelling. It wasn't edge of your seat, far from it. But we have a Masters that is already in the books. Kind of felt like a normal Masters this year. When you look back on 2020, obviously the Masters wasn't played there in April of that year, and then you had to fast forward to November where Dustin Johnson won, and they had to make it up at that time, and of course it was all out of whack and understood. A few months after that, April of last year, where Hideki Matsuyama was able to win, and there was a smattering of fans. In fact, if off the top of my head, there weren't many fans at all, because the PGA, when Phil Mickelson won, he was the guy that you saw a lot of fans there over at Kiwa Island, and we got a sense of golf being back to where fans were starting to stream in and have its impact on the course. But this one, although the weather wasn't great, and yesterday definitely looked picturesque in comparison to Friday and Saturday, but we could finally say that when we get a chance to watch this tournament, the Azaleas, Augusta, just the entire environment, 
yesterday kind of felt for the first time going back to when Tiger won in 2019 that this was a Masters that we were able to absorb and enjoy. But sadly, you didn't have the drama that unfolded over the course of the past few Masters, in particular last year, and if you want to even go back to 2019 when Tiger won, which was totally unexpected. But we already got the first tournament, major tournament at that under our belts, and then we'll move along to see what happens at the PGA. All right, now I'm going to pivot and turn to the association as the NBA concluded its season yesterday. And for some, I'm sure it was either a huge relief, in particular what's going on in L.A. with the Lakers, and not only with that relief comes major disappointment, and with the major disappointment comes the imminent firing of a one Frank Vogel, which he is going to be the fall guy for this. That's all there is to it. But think about this, people. Exactly 18 months to the day, a year and a half, when the Lakers beat the Heat in the bubble, October 11, 2020, here it is, fast forward to where he gets his pink slip and he has shown the door. And rightfully so. The Lakers had a season from hell. As I said last week, probably the most disappointing season ever in any scope for a team that had championship aspirations for them not to even make it to the playoffs is just downright awful. And especially when you're the Lakers. I could see if it was maybe a, another team. You want to say maybe even the Brooklyn Nets, a team that had these championship aspirations, and let's say they didn't make it to the playoffs. And right, we could even deem that being the worst season ever. But when we look at it on a whole, they are the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, what have they done since they've been in the NBA going back to when the ABA merged with the NBA in 1976? Two NBA's finals appearances. These are the Lakers. And for them not to make it to the postseason and how they just fell apart like a house of cards is almost inexplicable. But with all that being said, to me, Vogel should have been the guy gone. If it was me, it should have been Rob Palinka. And I get it that LeBron James has some influence there with the front office. He's the pseudo-GM And we know the moves that they made, and we're not going to rehash all that, and I'm going to put this to bed because we shouldn't even be talking about the Lakers, or at least yours truly shouldn't, because they are nowhere to be found. But the reason why I say that is because Vogel is the first guy out. Does he deserve it? I don't think he does, but of course, he's going to get all the blame, and the fingers are going to point toward him, and it's not as if the players are going to try to save him as far as his job goes. But to me, it should be Palinka or whomever else is running the front office there for the Lakers because... That was just an atrocity of a season that we just watched and how they performed throughout the course of the year. I get it, injuries. I get it that they weren't fully healthy. But as I mentioned last week, the Brooklyn Nets had the same amount of injuries, the same amount of players out, and even a trade in the middle of the season with James Harden for Ben Simmons, who still hasn't even stepped on a basketball court, and they made it to the postseason. So why not the Lakers? That's it. I'll move on. So now we can look ahead to the playing tournament. I won't get into the actual postseason on a whole. I'll save that for Thursday. And even then, it's not going to take into 100% shape depending on what happens here Tuesday and Wednesday with these playing games. So to set the stage with the four games that will take place Tuesday and Wednesday, Cleveland at Brooklyn where they just played on Friday night to where the Nets were victorious. So you have the Cavs going into the Barclays Center as the first game, 7 p.m. on Tuesday. Follow that by the Clippers 
at Minnesota, 9.30. Both games are on TNT. Follow that on Wednesday, Charlotte at Atlanta at 7 p.m. And then San Antonio at New Orleans, 9.30 p.m. Both games are on ESPN. And as we know, if the Nets win on Tuesday night, they will be the seventh seed and they will play the Boston Celtics in the first round. And then if the T-Wolves win, they will also move on as the seventh seed and they will play the Memphis Grizzlies. We have to see what happens there with Charlotte and Atlanta and, of course, San Antonio and New Orleans. We all know that if Cleveland does beat Brooklyn, they'll be the seventh seed, as well as the Clippers, and then the loser there will have to play the winner of Charlotte, Atlanta, meaning Cleveland, Brooklyn, and obviously the loser, LA, Minnesota, will play the loser of San Antonio for New Orleans. Both of those will be playing for the eighth seed in each conference. So obviously when we get to the Thursday podcast, we'll recap that. We'll see which teams will actually move ahead and we'll have a better idea and understanding as to what the matchups will be for the playoffs come this weekend, which will start off and they have a partial schedule because of course we do have some matchups that are already in place. But for Saturday's games, right now as it's constituted, the first game at 1 o'clock, and this is one of my favorite weekends. I love the opening round because you have the quadruple headers both days, Saturday and Sunday, to start off your postseason, which to me are exciting. And that used to fall on the weekend of the NFL draft many moons ago. But now as we take a look, the first game is Utah at Dallas. That'll be a 1 o'clock game on ESPN, followed by whomever the seven seed will play at Memphis. That'll be a 3.30 game. Toronto at Philadelphia, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of highlights on that opening game of the Kawhi Leonard shot, Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Semifinal back in 2019. You're going to get a lot of that, and there's a storyline already that has developed where Matisse Teibel, the defensive guard for the Sixers, he will not play in the road games up in Toronto because of the local or pretty much countrywide vaccination status that where you're unvaccinated, you cannot play. So he's a guy that's going to be sorely missed for those games three and four and possibly a game six up in Toronto. And then as far as Sunday, even though I'm looking at the schedule here, they got Denver at Golden State at 830, but who knows what that's going to be like. Maybe they're going to push them to Saturday night, primetime, who knows. But as it looks like right now, you're going to have Whomever is going to play Boston, I could see that being a 1 o'clock game, followed by, to be determined, at Miami, then Chicago, Milwaukee, and then Phoenix will probably be the nightcap. Where they put Golden State, who knows? I get it that ABC is probably going to have a primetime game there on Saturday, as well as, I would think, a 5.30 game on Sunday, maybe even a 3.30 game, who knows? Which, generally, that is the time slot that a lot of America will see probably sometime in the afternoon as we've witnessed and experienced in the past, but we'll get a better vision and understanding of what the schedule is going to look like come Thursday when we reconvene here on the podcast, but a couple of other storylines with the league going forward, Luka Doncic yesterday suffered a mild calf strain, had to leave in the third quarter. Don't know how severe. Right now, it doesn't seem as if it's going to be serious, although Jason Kidd downplayed it to the point where, hey, we have to wait and see. We're not going to speculate what the injury or how severe it is. So I'm sure all the Maverick fans there down in Dallas are taking a 
ginormous inhale because without Luka, you could pretty much forget about the Mavericks doing anything in the postseason. We also got to wonder what's going to happen there with Steph Curry. He's been out the last few weeks with that ankle injury, and even Coach Curry yesterday mentioned that it's still uncertain on whether or not he's going to play game one next weekend. So that's a storyline we certainly have to pay attention to. I talked about Ben Simmons earlier. He could return in round one. That means if the Nets win, as I said earlier, they will play the Celtics in the first round, which would be huge because they're going to need his defensive presence on the floor more than anything. Because the Celtics have played well here. They closed out their season in Memphis. Granted, no John Morant, and pretty much you got a lot of the second string coming off the bench, or second team. And the Celtics, think about this. Last year, they actually played in the first round as the 2-7 matchup, but of course, Brooklyn was the 2, and the Celtics were the 7, and this year it could be in reverse. But Ben Simmons, and I said this before, and I'll say it one last time, for him to be out of the lineup and not play at all this year because of this disc that he has in his back just makes you wonder his commitment to playing. And I get it. Backs are very uncertain. Backs are injuries that from one day to the next, they could go from being close to 100% to you not being able to get out of bed. But you have to wonder, and I got to call it as I see it, what's between his ears and really what's in his chest And this has nothing to do with the mental health that he is proclaimed going back to his days in Philadelphia. has nothing to do with that. But for him to not be ready, and okay, you want to come out of the gate from this trade, not healthy, you got to get back into playing shape, maybe even to game shape. But for him to not even be a part of this, and it's a could return in round one, what? Is that the first game, the third game, fourth game? Who knows? So that's something we got to watch out for. Jamal Murray, another guy with the Denver Nuggets. Coach Mike Malone did say it's up to him to when he wants to return. Remember, he tore his ACL last year in the playoffs. And I don't know how close to 100% that he is at this very stage. Maybe he's getting there. He's making strides. But Malone has stated that when he's ready to return, that's when we'll be more than welcome to have him back on the team. So that's another storyline we have to... Keep an eye on. And then here for the play-in tournament, Gordon Hayward, who has not seen an NBA court, pretty much it almost feels like the whole year, but he's going to miss the play-in. And who knows, even if Charlotte does beat Atlanta, will he be able to play in the follow-up? That remains to be seen. So we'll have to wait and see on that. But one thing is for sure, my over-under numbers, not great. I was 500. Thanks to Nikola Jokic's performance the other day, to where he was able to not only be the first player in NBA history to score 2,000 points, grab 1,000 rebounds, and have 500 assists in the same year. To think, first person ever. Not even LeBron has done that. And I find that kind of puzzling, because I would think LeBron, with all of his exploits, him being the only guy in the 75-year history of the league to have 30,000 points, 10,000 rebounds, 10,000 assists, that not one year... He had eclipsed 2K, 1K, and 500 assists. Actually, a little bit surprised there. But by him doing that in the game Thursday, I believe off the top of my head was against Memphis, to where they secured their 48th win. Their over-under number was 47.5. And and thankfully, and they did lose to the Lakers there yesterday in overtime. So 
I was able to secure a 500 record, big whoop. So that is me saving face there and not going under 500 for my over-under number picks for those out there who listen and who care. But that's what I have there with the NBA as we look forward to both playing tournaments, which I've never been a really big fan of, and I understand why the league does it. Generates more revenue, more intrigue, but as we saw last year, and even though Memphis did beat, they had two victories last year, including beating Golden State to get into the postseason, but for it to really stick, they'd have to win in the first round, and who knows, if the Nets make it as a 7-8 seed and they could come out easily, and would it be an upset if they beat Boston if they were a 7 seed, or beat Miami if they were an 8 seed? Uh, You can't say that it is because we all know that they are not an eighth seed on any given year based on the talent that the Nets have. So, But we shall see. We'll take a look at that a little bit more closely there on Thursday. But as we move along here throughout the sports universe, let's get over and talk about some baseball. As the first weekend has been completed. And the main story coming out of MLB over the last few days has to be What took place in the Bronx, not necessarily between the Red Sox and Yankees, where the Red Sox were able to salvage the game last night on Sunday Night Baseball. But the scenario regarding Aaron Judge and his self-imposed deadline, opening day, that he wanted to sign a long-term extension. Of course, he said all the right things. He wants to be a Yankee, but he doesn't want his contract talks to be a distraction to the team, to the ball club all year, so... Therefore, come April 7th, which should have been opening day, but because of the rain out, it was pushed to Friday. And right before, probably an hour or so before opening pitch, to where Brian Cashman had a press conference talking about the contract in full detail, where a lot of GMs, they keep that close to the vest. Yes, if the question is posed, what's the latest with Aaron Judge's contract? And he could say, Yes, we put out a generous offer. It's on the table for him. We understand that the deadline is at 1.05 p.m. He hasn't come to sign his name on a dotted line. And away we go. But he had voluntarily offered how the contract was going to be broken down. Yes, we're going to extend him seven years. Also include that arbitration year at $17 million to where the contract was going to be in total $230 million over eight years. We have it all ready, set on the silver platter, ready for him to take his Sharpie and sign, but that was nowhere to be found. To where Aaron Judge afterwards, after their opening day victory in extra innings against the Red Sox, had to address this to the point where he said he was disappointed that he was unable to sign that long-term deal, that everything will play out. He's there to focus on winning a championship. He's there to focus on being healthy and not only that, having a successful season to where it ends up being a title and raising a trophy over his head come late October. Fine and dandy, said all the right things. Judge, he's a vanilla guy. He's not going to give you too much. As I said last week, he's Jeter-esque when it comes to that. But now here's the big hurdle that he's going to have to cross, and understandably so. We know the type of talent Aaron Judge is. We know that he is a arguably a top-five player in baseball, and he's the face of this Yankee franchise, no doubt. But he is pushing all his proverbial chips to the middle of the table, and if you're Aaron Judge, you probably would do the same thing. But here's the one caveat that I would have if I'm Aaron Judge, 
You better stay healthy, my guy. Two trips to the IL or an extended trip to where he's going to be out four to six weeks because of an oblique or a hemi or something that's going to be nagging. He is not going to see $230 million unless some punch-drunk owner, a la Tom Hicks back in the day with Alex Rodriguez sliding over that $252 million contract across the table and say, Alex, please sign. Unless an owner is going to do that, there is no way he's going to see that type of money, let alone in pinstripes, but maybe even somewhere else. And was it smart for Brian Cashman to even lay out all those details? as damage control, not only to the Yankee fan, who's pretty much had it up to here when it comes to Brian Cashman, based on some of the deals that he's made over the last few years, but also with the media, because they know that the media would kill him if he didn't come out to have in great detail what this contract was and how we were ready to embrace him as a Yankee for the rest of his career. Now, that's what I think it was because Cashman, I'm not going to say he was public enemy number one in these parts, but there are a lot of Yankee fans that aren't too happy with him. And I have a lot of Yankee fans in my life and they have just destroyed him. And I don't know if that's a knee-jerk reaction based on what Steve Cohen had done in the offseason with the Mets. Not that there should be any comparison between what the Mets do and the Yankees do because the Yankee fans should never pay attention to what the Mets do. But there may be some influence in that where the Met fan is jumping up and down, not only getting the manager that I'm sure a lot of Yankee fans would have wanted, but getting Max Scherzer, getting a guy like Starling Marte, and all these other bit pieces that they got to complete their team, and the Yankees are just standing pat to where Hal Steinbrenner says, oh, we're not going to compete with the Mets, and we're going to make sure that we don't cross this luxury tax, etc., as we've heard over the last few years. But Kudos for Cashman for doing that, and I understand why. It was certainly unconventional, but now the ball is strictly in Aaron Judge's court. And all he has to do is remain healthy, because you would think that if he plays 150 to 155 games, he is going to hit anywhere between 35 to 45 home runs, probably knock in 110 to 130, bat 290 and up, and be in the running for an MVP. If he does that, then all the pressure's on the Yankees for them to re-sign Judge probably in upwards of three hundred to $350 million. And if he's on the IL, not once but twice, or has that long extended stay to where he's on the shelf for two months, then it would justify Cashman for saying what he said in that press conference day on Friday and pretty much looking like a hero to where Judge... Who knows if he's going to get $200 million, let alone 230 going into this offseason. So that's one that we'll certainly watch throughout the course of this year. A couple other things about the weekend. Quickly with the Mets. I know that come Friday night, the Mets fan was furious at the Nationals because they were being thrown at left and right. Whether your name was James McCann, whether your name was Francisco Lindor, obviously Pete Alonso there in the same game with McCann on opening night. And then you had the benches cleared. One thing I loved was Buck Showalter darting out of the dugout, going towards Steve Ciszek and just letting him have it. And when you have your manager going out and doing that, especially a guy like Buck Showalter who's been around the game for many years, 
If that wasn't a great sign to see as a Met fan, then I don't know what was. And yes, we would have liked the sweep in Washington to start off a year. And I was back and forth between the golf and watching the Met game. And when Trevor Williams came in the eighth inning, it made you think what happened to Trevor May. And you even heard the announcers, Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez, wondering, all right, this is a bit of a risk here, a puzzling move. They had a runner on first. They bring in Williams. And then all of a sudden, base it up the middle. D. Strange Gordon goes to third. First and third, nobody out. And then the game just unfolded from there to where three runs in the bottom of the eighth and then the Nats were able to salvage the final game of that series. Now the Mets go up the turnpike to play the Phillies where those should be some hotly contested games because the Nationals, I think, they're going to have a long year. But besides that, to really get into what had taken place over this first weekend, I know one storyline going into the start of the year was Ronald Acuna Jr. saying that he was not missing Freddie Freeman in that brave clubhouse, said he had a lot of clashes, that there wasn't any love loss between the two. And this was an interview with a reporter from the Dominican Republic saying that going back to his rookie year, he was being picked on a lot with the eye black and the shades and maybe a little bit of the swagger and trying to tell the kid to pipe down and have to act a certain way as a professional that even though he's a hot shot and he's one of the top players in baseball even coming in, as a rookie, but he had to tone it down, and maybe Freddie Freeman was at the forefront of that. Obviously, we won't know. I haven't seen any quotes from Freeman regarding that, and I'm sure he's putting that in his rearview mirror considering he's back home in L.A. and has a chance to go back to a World Series as a member of the Dodgers, but that was some interesting news. But to me, how I looked at it was much to do about nothing, only because if there was a rift between the two as recent as last year, then I could say, "Mm, there may be some legs to the story. But he hearkened back to his rookie year. He talked about, just as I explained, the eye black, having the shades maybe on top of the hat, maybe a little bit too much swag, and to have the veterans in that locker room, in particular Freeman, to kind of say, hey kid, can you ease back with that stuff? We don't do that around here. Maybe that hit a little bit too, or cut a little bit too deep. For Acuna, and maybe he wasn't able to get over that or get past that. And even though he played the role and he said that, hey, I'm not a veteran, I gotta not necessarily take his lumps, but he's gonna have to pay his dues, he's gonna have to show and prove, all that stuff. But when first reading that headline, it made me think, uh oh, what's going on there? And we all know Acuna is an all world talent, but when you read the story and you see what had taken place, it's like, ah, is this really a story that you could sink your teeth in that has a lot of juice to it. I don't think it does, but I bring it up anyway only because let's see what type of repercussions down the road. Not to say Freeman's going to come out and say anything, but who knows when Atlanta plays the Dodgers and Acuna gets a base in and he's standing on first base next to Freddie Freeman, there may not be any high fives or smiles or fist bumps when it comes to the two players if that were to take place. And good for the Pirates siring Cabrian Hayes to an eight-year, $70 million contract. We all know the Pirates aren't going to go anywhere this year, but at least they don't have to worry about their top prospect leaving after another five years to go to another organization. So you have that. And then it's interesting with the Padres, and they've gotten off to a good start. They're 3-1, and one, but they traded Chris Paddock to the Twins there before opening day, which made himself expendable considering... 
the Sean Manaya trade from Oakland to San Diego, but now you have an, an issue with Blake Snell with an adductor, and who knows how long that may affect him to where Paddock is now in Minnesota, so they lose a little bit of depth there, and I don't know who they got back in the trade, but with Paddock going to Minnesota, even though you have you Darvish and Mike Clevenger who's on the men coming back from Tommy John, that was one of the reasons why Paddock was expendable, but still made you wonder why would they make a deal like that, and especially with Snell. Not to say he's been injury prone, but we all know he's a five-inning pitcher to me. As I've said in the past, check the receipts. He's Scott Casimir 2.0. Maybe a smidge better, but he's that guy that could be tantalizing, that could be dominant, but after five innings and 105 pitches, he's going to hit the showers. So that's pretty much what you got with baseball. I'm not going to really go in depth on some of the other things that are going on. Maybe we could talk about the Rays. They're 3-0. and What else is new? I picked the Rays as an under if you heard the pod on Friday, or excuse me, on Thursday. And the Rays, I get it. They're a team that's resourceful, and I'm not going to go crazy after three games to kind of look at it and say, oh boy, they're going to prove me wrong here. But it was against the Baltimore Orioles, so at least I have a reprieve knowing that pretty much any team could get off to a 3-0 and start if you're going to play the Baltimore Orioles. So that's what we have with the baseball now let me move over to the NFL real quick because there was a just sad and tragic death in the league there on Saturday. And strange as it was, I didn't get a text. I didn't check any of the sports websites, ESPN, Fox, whatever, that I usually go for one of my sources to get some information. But for CNN and to get the blurb or notification on my phone to read that Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Dwayne Haskins died. It made me think, what in the hell, CNN? So right away, I went to research and noticed that he was hit by a truck on 595, and that's a highway in South Florida that pretty much goes from the one side of Fort Lauderdale, east to west, and then up the west side of Broward County, past Coral Springs, and then around over towards Boca. I believe it's the Sawgrass Expressway. For him to be hit by a truck early Saturday morning, 6.30, where the report was he was trying to cross the highway. Now listen, before we even jump to conclusions, and people right away would think, what was he doing on a highway 6.30 in the morning and then trying to cross At the same time, was he drunk? Was he high? What was he thinking? What was he doing? We can't rush to judgment here until we find out a little bit more. And I'm not saying this because Haskins was a stealer. I'm not saying this because, obviously, I don't have all the details. What I do know is that, yes, he was hit by a truck. But there has to be some sort of information. I'm sure there's going to be an autopsy thinking that, Maybe there was something in the system. I don't know that. And I'm not saying or even alleging that there was any type of substance in his body at that time. The only thing I could think of, if I even want to speculate, is that maybe he had to pull over for a reason. Who knows if his car was on the blink or he got a flat and here he is trying to get to a gas station and the next thing you know, he loses his life. I'm sure other people wondering, what the hell is he doing out there at 6.30 in the morning? Maybe he was going to meet the guys 
as a bunch of Steelers and NFL players had made their way to South Florida, I actually watched a couple of the clips. Chase Claypool, a bunch of guys that were down there, other receivers with Mitchell Trubisky as they're trying to get themselves acclimated to be familiar with one another, building up some chemistry and camaraderie, and Haskins was a part of that. I'm sure, quite possibly, he was on his way to meet those guys, and then this terrible incident happened. And what could you say? Here's a guy that we all know, former number one pick of the Washington football team, and to me, today's not the day to get on him as far as maybe his work ethic in Washington or some of the things he did off the field, especially during COVID at the height of it. That's not to even be discussed today. And I'm actually going to bring that up a little bit later on as I close out the podcast. But just an awful story. Leaves behind a wife. Obviously a lot of teammates, a huge outpouring on social media. TJ Watt in particular said he was such a fun-loving guy. Every time you saw him, he was always upbeat. And he was probably going to compete for the backup role in Pittsburgh where you think Trubisky is going to be your starter, where it was going to be he and Mason Rudolph, and even Mason Rudolph tweeted that he was devastated. So just an awful story. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Haskins family, and obviously a life taken way, way too soon, and we'll never, ever get to see the full potential of what Dwayne Haskins could have been in the league, leaving us at the tender age of 24. And sadly, had a couple other deaths in the last few days. The Hall of Fame offensive tackle, Rayfield Wright, dying at the age of 76 due to complications from a seizure. Came up there in the late 60s, played throughout the 70s, obviously part of those Super Bowl teams with the Cowboys under Tom Landry. And he passing away, as well as Gary Brown. If you remember, that Oiler team that made it to the divisional round in 93 to where they lost to the Kansas City Chiefs who went on to the AFC Championship game against Buffalo. Well, that Oiler team, I believe was 12-4, and had Gary Brown as their running back in eight games, rushed for over 1,000 yards, and then bounced around throughout the league, was also a running back coach of the Cowboys and then also had moved around as a running backs coach on other teams, but he also died at the age of 52 due to colon cancer, as well as cancer of the liver. And when you see these guys just dying so young, I mean, Rayfield Wright, 76, I get it, but even still, 76, still isn't that old when you think about it. And then 52, I mean, (laughs) what more can you say? I just turned 53. So that's all you need to know about a guy leaving way too soon. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Wright and Brown family. The Ravens, they re-signed Calais Campbell more to stuff that's happening as far as transactions go, as we can put the deaths to the side, thankfully. Calais Campbell will come back 15 years in the league, two years to re-up with Baltimore. And two other quick things I didn't really get to. Last week, Bruce Arians retiring to where Todd Bowles is anointed as coach of the Buccaneers. And we do know Arians and his Deep friendship with the one Todd Bowles going back to his days at Arizona when Arians was the coach and Todd Bowles was the defensive coordinator. And with everything that's gone on in the league as far as minority hirings and Arians looking out for his buddy saying, I'm going to take a position in the front office where 
we're going to move you up to be coach. Now, we all know Todd Bowles' coaching record. He had a 10-6 record, year one with the Jets. Had a shot to go to the playoffs, but he lost in Buffalo to Rex Ryan, the former Jet coach, if you remember. And then after that, just went south as a Jet coach from there. Not very personable. I get it. The New York media is going to be light years ahead of the Tampa media, but let's see what he does in his second stint as NFL coach down in Tampa. Supposedly no rift with Tom Brady as far as Arians to Brady. A lot of love still there, and let's see what Bowles is going to do with that combination with he and his quarterback. And then one other thing, Buffalo is to get a new stadium in Orchard Park, and the only reason why I bring this up is because, as we've seen time after time with these owners, not being able to pay or at least put a significant chunk of money to procure these stadiums. And where you have the NFL and the Pagulas, who are the owners, only footing a third of this to where the NFL and more so the taxpayers of New York State are going to pay the rest of this $1.2 billion outdoor stadium pretty much in the parking lot of Orchard Park. That's a disgrace. These owners are making money hand over fist by the nanosecond. And these are billionaires to begin with. For them not being able to plunk at least $800 million, plunk two-thirds of their own money for these stadiums, and I understand this is going to ring hollow to the owner, they don't care. This is where they get all the breaks. But it's just a downright disgrace that we, the taxpayers, have to foot the bill And not only just for the new stadium in Buffalo, it could be the same set for Yankee Stadium, City Field, Barclays Center, I would even think the UBS Arena. Not that I have those stats in front of me, but we all know that these are publicly funded as opposed to privately funded, so I had to get that off my chest because it's just, again, it's an abomination that it has to come down to us to pay the majority for these buildings that, in this case, for Buffalo, forget about the preseason games that is going to be filled Minimum eight times a year, maybe 10 with the preseason games and possibly 12 max if they make it to a championship game in their building and then go on to a Super Bowl. So I just had to get that off my chest. And then the Eagles and New Orleans Saints made a trade to where they swap picks. I believe the Saints are going to move up. Maybe they'll draft a quarterback. Who knows? I know they got Jameis Winston and even... Taysom Hill, who's going to be more featured, I guess, as a tight end. But they made a move where the Eagles had a plethora of number one picks, so they figured, why not get more draft capital by trading with the Saints? So that's something we'll pay attention to where the draft is two weeks from this coming Thursday. And then finally, with the NHL, not really much going on there. Not a lot of position being jockeyed there as far as the playoffs. Everything is pretty much status quo as we talked about there last week. But we'll continue to be on top of this as the season will end two weeks from this coming Friday. But if you're a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, I get it that it's the regular season and you've seen this movie before, but I'm sure you're ecstatic by the exploits of a one Austin Matthews as he not only set the record for most goals scored by an American-born player, breaking Jimmy Carson and Kevin Stevens' 55 goals in one hockey season, but also the most goals scored by a Maple Leaf player in their long and illustrious history, which was currently set by Rick Vive 40 years ago. 
back in 1982 as a member of the Maple Leafs. And with two more goals that he scored last night, he has 58. And he is certainly has his goal and his eye, no pun intended, eye set on attaining 60 goals in a season. But here's what it really boils down to. The fan base needs to see this in the playoffs. Because as we saw last year in that opening round against the Canadians, to where he and Mitch Marner were nowhere to be found after being up three games to one before they spit the bit and gagged, losing the next three to the Canadians in the opening round as the top seed in the Northern Division. Remember, the divisions were separate last year because of COVID. So he can score all the regular season goals he wants, but if this doesn't equate or transition into the postseason, then nobody's going to care. But I get it that the Leaf fan could break out the blue and white pom-poms and think that, all right, Austin, you're flying high. You're probably going to be in the MVP consideration. Everything is coming up roses right now, but let's see this in May and possibly June and into July. That's what the Maple Leaf fan wants to see. And like I said, everything is pretty much status quo. The Capitals are playing well, so you can forget about the Islanders even posing a threat to getting that last wild card seed. I know out west it's a little bit more intriguing when it comes to the wild card scenario. And I guess I'll touch on that real quick. When we look at Nashville being the top wild card seed, followed by Dallas, they're only separated by a point. Then Vegas, two points behind them. And then you got Vancouver, four points behind Vegas and six points behind the Stars. Maybe not as intriguing, maybe not as thrilling. We'll certainly keep an eye because we do have two and a half weeks to go. A lot of these teams have played 73, 74 games, so there's still eight, nine games to go, and a lot can happen here over the course of these final two and a half weeks. So we'll see how this playoff race takes into shape as we get closer to the end of the regular season. And with that being said, people, let's get right to it. My hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week goes to Seth Beer. Who is he, Seth Beer? Who the hell is that, Jay Reels? He is the Arizona Diamondback first baseman who on opening night hit a walk-off three-run homer against the San Diego Padres. But to make it apropos, he did it on National Beer Day. Now, I am one that does not follow... And I can't really stand these senseless national days, whether it's National Hamburger Day or Cookie Day or Ice Cream Day or Hug Your Teddy Bear Day. I I, Please, to me, this is just another bastardization for the American public just to wrap their arms around, whether it's to indulge in their favorite beverage or indulge in their favorite food. I I could care less. But it is kind of interesting to know that on National Beer Day, a guy named Seth Beer is a hero to hit a walk-off three-run homer to start off the Arizona Diamondback season at 1-0. Hey, why not? So, Seth Beer, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to NFL insider Adam Schefter for mentioning in a tweet regarding Dwayne Haskins his struggle in Washington as he was reporting his death in the same paragraph or same tweet. As I said earlier, and even as I posted on TikTok, which I'm having a little bit of fun with, and I'll get to that in a minute, for him to even mention his struggle in Washington while having to report his death, and I'm sure he was able to delete or at least edit that tweet because he didn't even apologize for it. And 
when I looked on Twitter Saturday to get even more confirmation about Haskins' death and to know that everybody was flaming toward Adam Schefter's tweet and how he was insensitive and how this was just, and this was despicable of him to even mention the struggles and to kind of talk about his ineptitude while playing in Washington. Schefter, you know better. You shouldn't have gone there whether you had a reason to, maybe he had an encounter with Haskins that wasn't too favorable. I don't know, but that was just tasteless. That was just terrible on his part. He should have known better and not even to apologize to say, I shouldn't have said that word. My bad. Not even doing that to just reframe the tweet or delete and repost. Not good, my guy. So Adam Schefter, you are my zero of the week. That'll do it. Another episode in the books. As always, I am sincerely grateful and thankful for your participation, people, for tuning in to listen to what it is that I have to say about what happens in the world of sports. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Please, let's increase the visibility. Let's get it on and popping so a lot of people know who J Reels is and what the podcast is all about. Take a screenshot, send it to me, post it on social media. I would sincerely appreciate that. If you want to hit me up, you could do so at any of the following on TikTok. That's right. I'm having a little bit of fun with that. I'm a few days in and I plan to continue to post a lot more. So please follow me there at the J Reels Podcast. Of course, on Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page or the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise, suggestions, whatever it may be. I'll be sure to follow up with you. And then lastly, if you want to support this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth, I plan to put exclusive content there in the near future. So for those who want to put forth a few dollars, which will go 100% into everything that has to do with this podcast, the production, the website, the equipment, everything to have your experience to come through your earbuds or speakers to be 100%, not only just crisp and concise, but to be able to enjoy this content as I continue to inform, as I continue to entertain, because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood. It's in my DNA. I love to talk sports. I love to critique it. I love to, of course, big up everything and anything that what's happening on the ice, the diamond, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. See you on Thursday with the next installment. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.